Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 33rd episode of this podcast, recorded on Monday, November 20. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. Last week was Thanksgiving, and Christmas and Hanukkah are not far away. The holiday season is a time to be grateful for our blessings, and it's also a time to help those who are less fortunate. So given the time of year, I thought it would be fitting to welcome to the podcast someone who has devoted her legal career to aiding those in need. My latest podcast guest is Twyla Carter, Attorney-in-Chief and Chief Executive Officer of the Legal Aid Society, or LAS. The society describes itself as the largest, most influential social justice law firm in New York City, and Twyla is the first Black woman and first Asian American to lead the organization in its 145-year history. In our conversation, we discussed LAS's crucial efforts to ensure that New Yorkers are not denied their right to equal justice because of poverty, as well as Twyla's own impressive career in public interest law. But I also pressed her on some controversial topics, including New York City's right to shelter mandate, which LAS is defending in court amid a growing homelessness problem, and whether criminal justice reform, which Twyla has worked on for years, has gone too far. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Twyla Carter. Twyla, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So as we usually do, let's begin with just getting to know you. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing. Were there any early hints that you would become a lawyer? Oh, I had a wonderful upbringing in childhood. Best parents on the planet. Military brat, if you will, born on an Air Force base. And so my parents, very loving, very kind, and also strict, which I appreciate. I think, you know, to your question about hints that I might become a lawyer, I think my parents would say that I was an outspoken child, a good advocate <laughs> for myself. So I think that, yeah, there probably were some hints. And did you move around a lot if your family was in the military? We did. We did. So I was born in Texas. My sister was born in Japan. Uh, depending on your perspective, she may have got the better gig than I did. But <laughs> yes, really enjoyed that experience living overseas, like in Germany to Alaska, et cetera. So yeah, it was great. Wow. Where would you say you grew up? I would say I grew up in Spokane, Washington, in eastern Washington and Washington State. Home for me is Seattle. And it's interesting as a military person, a child of a military family, I would say that for me, I define home as where I lived the longest. So it would mm -hmm. be Seattle, but where I grew up, I spent my formidable years in Spokane, Washington and went to Medical Lake High School. So shout out to Medical Lake for that. Excellent. So tell us about what led you to law school then. I only went to law school to become a public defender. And that's what okay. my personal statement said. It's what I wanted to do. I've always been really passionate about advocating on behalf of people from marginalized and disenfranchised communities and wanted to be able to stand up for them in the criminal legal system as I grew up and saw that we, as a society, were criminalizing mental health, criminalizing drug misuse, and criminalizing poverty. 
And did you do that right out of law school, become a public defender? I did. Right after law school, I worked at the Defender Association in Martin Luther King Jr. County, Seattle, Washington, at the Defender Association, where I was a staff attorney and then became the misdemeanor practice director, where I oversaw all of the misdemeanor practice for the four different divisions of the department. And from there, I went to the ACLU National Office and worked in the Criminal Law Reform Project, where I quite honestly, sue jurisdictions around the country around bail reform violations and ensuring that low-income people had the right to a public defender. And then after that, I was the National Legal and Policy Director at the Bail Project, which is a national organization that pays cash bail to get people out of cages. And also we worked on ending the use of cash bail, trying to limit the use of pretrial detention and eliminating racial disparities in pretrial release decisions. And we did that at the local, state, and federal level. And then what led you ultimately to where you are now at the Legal Aid Society? This is a dream job for me. It was an opportunity to bring together my direct services, my policy and advocacy skills, as well as my civil impact litigation experience and the opportunity to lead these fantastic, dedicated, passionate, hardworking, brilliant advocates and soldiers during a civil rights war felt like an amazing opportunity that I could not pass up. And so while it is very challenging, it is still a dream job. Now, just to rewind a little bit back to your time as a public defender, I think you were a public defender for quite some time, right? Like a decade at least? A decade at least, yeah. When you took that job right out of law school, weren't you a little nervous? People are looking to you fresh out of law school to prevent them from losing their liberty for all these really sort of high stakes consequences. I mean, I think I would be terrified. Absolutely. It is a role that is not to be taken lightly because you're right. You really are in many cases the only person in the courtroom There may not be family. There may not be other supporters. You are literally the only person in the courtroom who may be standing up for and standing beside a person who is accused of a crime, everything from shoplifting to murder, certainly. What I have learned and what being a public defender allowed me to do was really embrace a personal principle that I have, which is that no human being should be fully defined by their worst decision. I also believe that we judge other people's decisions without knowing what the choices were. And so being a public defender really hit home for me just how important those two principles are. And then to go to that first career transition from being a public defender to the ACLU, did you find it difficult to switch from direct services to something that was more like impact litigation? And did you miss representing the individual clients? Was that a good transition for you? That's a great question. Yes, there is a real switch because from going from defense to offense, when you're in civil impact litigation, you're playing offense and bringing the case, if you will. In civil impact litigation, it takes a while to identify plaintiffs and work the case up, whereas in public defense, it's a much faster pace. The caseload and workload obviously is different between being a public defender and being a civil impact person as well. And it was an interesting transition for me because I really do enjoy being in the courtroom and I really do enjoy the direct contact and advocating on behalf of individual clients very much. It was satisfying to be a civil impact litigator as well, though, because those same issues, I was able to effectuate change on a much larger scale. 
on behalf of a class of people, if you will, you know, suing full jurisdictions versus handling one case at a time. And would you say there's one you like better than the other or are they just different? I think they're just different and they're marginally satisfying in both. I will be honest about that. Being a public defender is marginally satisfying because certain clients are going to be found guilty. You know, police evidence that shouldn't have been let in is let in. You know, biases are going to come in. There's things that you can't control in the criminal legal system on behalf of individuals. And so that is very frustrating. And the civil impact litigation, same thing. Another tool in the tool belt, also not foolproof, though. It's not 100%, right? It is a much slower pace. There are a lot of settlements that may not be what you would like them to be. A lot of times the government will do just what it has to do, meet the, the constitutional floor, but not do what it should do. So again, marginally satisfying, all different tools in the tool belt. You need all of it. Undercutting everything, though, is the community. You must have community involvement and make sure that the community understands what's happening or neither one of those methods are actually effective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, turning to your current role, leading the Legal Aid Society, for any listeners who might not be familiar with it, although I suspect most, if not all, are, can you tell us about the organization and provide a brief overview of its work? That's great. Thank you. Legal Aid Society has been around for 147 years, nearly 150 years. We're the largest and oldest joint public defender and civil legal services provider in New York, as well as arguably in the country. We handle approximately 300,000 cases in criminal, civil, and juvenile and family courts, which impact nearly 200,000 individuals. We have about 2,200 staff. We do everything from, again, handling any charges that you might have in the criminal legal system to helping on immigration, elder issues, tax, housing, public benefits, to foster families and foster children, juvenile rights and issues, delinquency and welfare, child welfare issues. So we cover pretty much the full waterfront of issues that concern our constituency, our base, if you will, the people that we serve. We really work to advocate on behalf of issues and causes and policies and practices that will eradicate the harms that come from poverty and poverty itself. And would you say that most of the work is in the nature of direct services, or do you also do impact or policy or other types of work on the various issues that the society touches? We do. We do. We do direct services, certainly in all the different areas that I just named. We also do policy and advocacy, to your point, on all of those areas as well. So we have policy staff, we have strategic litigation, special litigation staff and attorneys that can bring, again, class action lawsuits, whether it's around Rikers or whether it's around right to counsel in housing court or right to shelter, which are some issues that I think folks have seen in the news where legal aid is a part of, if not leading, leading the charge. So we do use all of those tools in our tool belt as well. And you are the first Black woman and the first Asian American to lead the Legal Aid Society in its almost 150-year history. Would you say your identity has affected your journey through the profession and informed your work at the Society in any way? Well, I would say it certainly does. I mean, you know, I've been a lawyer for 17, 18 years. I've been a Black and Chinese woman my whole life. So it is 
you know, the lens through which I see all issues and do the work. And certainly as a woman of color, certainly understand the issues that impact people of color and obviously have a sensitivity to those particular issues and an understanding and try to bring that lens to all the work that I do, of course, in recognizing the harms and the impact that are made by policies and practices and laws as they are defined and implemented and enforced upon on folks. Now, when you just a moment ago listed all of the different areas that LES works in, it seems that, of course, the needs that you're addressing are vast. You work across a wide range of issues. And I know they're all important, but are there any issues or problems that you would say either you or the society are particularly focused on right now? Yes, I can tell you my primary focus is on organizational funding fairness. It is the number one priority in the sense that it is how we operate. We are woefully underfunded and under-resourced. An example that I use many times is the NYPD has an $11 billion budget when you consider salaries, benefits, and pensions and everything all in. And so NYPD, just the police, not counting the prosecutors, courts, corrections, and all the other government actors, just the police have a, has about 30 times the budget that we would have um, just to get to the point of arrest than what we have from arrest to the rest of the entire system. And so when you see the system imbalanced in such a way, our staff, our attorneys are working really hard to try to provide constitutionally and legally mandated and necessary services in all of the three practice areas that we have. We have unprecedented attrition from folks leaving because our salaries do not pay competitive wages, do not pay livable wages. We are not able to pay salaries depending on what level you're at. That is going to be 40 times the rent, which is required to live in New York City. You know, we have folks that have been lawyers for 10 years that are serving food at night, driving Ubers. Wow. Everyone from the janitor to the judge in the courthouse has a government-endorsed and paid pension. We do not. We are the only ones of all of the stakeholders in the legal system who have to pay our rent, our health care, and our labor contracts directly out of our budget, whereas all of the government actors are not responsible for that. We're also subjected to contract procurement issues that no one else is subjected to, which means we can't even get paid until our contracts are registered, which creates another layer of difficulty. So that's been the priority issue. Secondary, I would say, is securing additional reforms for the legal system, including codifying legislation um, to ensure that young New Yorkers have access to an attorney prior to police interrogation, also passage of legislation that would provide more New Yorkers in the criminal legal system with opportunities to access mental health and substance misuse resources. And of course, housing, as you know, is a major concern. So we're focused on pushing legislation that would also equip tenants with basic rights to defend against warrantless evictions and exorbitant uh, rent increases. So going back to the funding issue, where does the Legal Aid Society's budget come from? And also, my listeners are a well-heeled audience. Is there anything that we can do to help the work of the Legal Aid Society? I really appreciate that. So 90% of our funding, 80 to 90%, but closer to the 90% comes from government 
So you can imagine anything you see with regards to the mayor or others, the governor talking about fiscal crisis, how that could impact in those of us. We also receive huge voluntary support from law firms with sustaining law firm support. And of course, individual donors and, you know, foundations, other corporations, that sort of thing. Uh, to your second question, which I appreciate you asking. Yes, of course, please. For those of you listening, we could use your help. It's the pressure on elected and appointed officials to realize the importance of the Sixth Amendment that every single person, regardless of if they're actually guilty or not, they're entitled to effective representation, effective assistance of counsel. And in order for the system to even have anything close to fairness and justice, it is in all of our best interests that we and other public defender agencies and civil legal services are, are adequately and fully funded to do the work that we do to be able to help low-income New Yorkers. Now, you mentioned law firms. In addition to providing financial support, do law firms also help in terms of the services of their lawyers? Absolutely. We get multi-millions of dollars in support from New York law firms for pro bono work. We have a very robust pro bono practice and really appreciate the support that we do get from New York, primarily New York-based law firms on the work that we do around the city and around the state on the issues that we do, whether it's providing direct services or research memos or helping us handle some of our civil impact litig litigation cases, whether it's advocacy. We are really appreciative of the pro bono assistance that we do receive from law firms. This podcast is being sponsored by Nextfirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, Nextfirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact Nextfirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow Nextfirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. Now, you are, I believe, in your second year leading the Legal Aid Society. What would you identify as some of the accomplishments from your first year of which you are most proud? First, I want to acknowledge just getting to know the staff and our allies and partners and getting to know all of the elected officials and appointed officials and other heads of organizations, other community groups, et cetera. So I do want to just put that out there as a proud accomplishment. I am proud of doing that. I have purposefully gone on the ground and worked from each borough, each office for a week at a time in each mm. borough. And I've done that full rotation twice and I'll start it again. I do think it's important when advocating on behalf of staff and attorneys at Legal Aid Society to get on the ground and see how the different boroughs operate. Outside of that, Securing increased funding at both the city and the state level in one budget cycle is an accomplishment that I'm proud of with the leadership team and with our union partners and our allies and partners, the board, et cetera, to be able to do that. We had a dental settlement earlier this year where we settled litigation that bolsters dental treatment for millions of low-income New Yorkers currently on Medicaid. Just last week, in fact, Governor Hochul signed Clean Slate Act which had widespread support, not just from public defenders and advocates, but labor and the business community, in addition to other stakeholders and interested parties. And this bill would automatically seal certain convictions after a specified period of time. So we're proud of that. Also, just this past Friday, we filed a contempt motion against the city of New York and an application to appoint a receivership over the jail system. So for... Rikers and for those folks listening, receiverships are essentially a vote of no confidence in the government's capacity 
or willingness to comply with the court orders designed to improve the jail conditions, specifically at Rikers. Receiverships also help renovate, construct new facilities, increasing and professionalizing staff and adopting new policies and procedures, among other benefits that are really important to us. And then also, as you may know, Legal Aid and others brought litigation years ago over the skyrocketing use of force and deplorable conditions at local jails. So this resulted also in a consent decree and court-appointed monitor. Unfortunately, since all of that was put into place, conditions at local jails have worsened. And I'm sure you've read all the horror stories. You know, at this current rate, there will be over 6,500 use of force incidents in just this year as compared to 2,000 fewer incidents in 2016. There have been more deaths of people in DOC custody than in over a decade. Turning to other current events, so right now, of course, the Legal Aid Society is engaged in a battle with New York City over the city's right to shelter mandate, which requires the city to provide temporary housing for every homeless person. And it's fairly unique. I don't know many other major cities that have it. Now, as folks know, again, from headlines, the city is dealing with a huge influx of migrants. More than 130,000 have come to the city recently, and it's making it difficult for the city to comply with the right to shelter mandate. And so I think the city, from what I understand, has been trying to either suspend or modify the mandate. And this is something that the Legal Aid Society opposes. So I guess what I would ask is, in light of this crisis of migrants coming to the city and overwhelming the system, would it make sense for the city to be able to make some adjustments? So what I will say, and I appreciate this question, as you said, it's a complicated situation with having the influx of, we refer to our new neighbors as new New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. So first, it's important to know for listeners that the right to shelter protections have defined New York City for over 40 years. And the Callahan Consent Decree, if you hear people talk about that, the Callahan Consent Decree was effectuated decades ago, and it requires the city to provide a bed to any single adult who seeks it. And Callahan is rooted in our state constitution, and it's a provision that requires the state to care for the needy. And these protections have thwarted mass street homelessness and put people on a path to independence and self-sustainment, which is obviously very important and something that all of us should want. And because of right to shelter, New York has avoided what many West Coast cities experience, which is street homelessness, right? In Los Angeles, San Francisco and Seattle, which is, you know, home for me, Mm -hmm. you know, now New York, but Seattle is also... No New Yorker wants to see more people sleeping on the street, in the parks, subway stations, and other public spaces, exposed, obviously, to the elements, especially as we're getting close to winter now. And so we want to keep that in mind. And we believe that both the state and the city can employ solutions that we have advocated for instead of seeking to gut the right to shelter. So at the state level, the governor can issue a statewide executive order overriding local county executive orders to settle new arrivals in jurisdictions throughout the state. Currently, New York has begun to provide housing vouchers for people to use upstate to lighten Mm. and lessen the burden on localities. It's also important to note that many of these people are here legally. So they entered the United States at a port of entry, they applied for asylum, and they're currently on parole while their case is adjudicated. A large majority are Venezuelan, 
And many of those folks are now eligible to work thanks to the Biden administration extending the temporary protected status to this particular population. Governor Hopel herself has stated that New York has tens of thousands of job openings. And, you know, what we're seeing is that our new Venezuelan neighbors really want to do work. They want to Mm -hmm. work. So the state also has significant resources to employ in the form of funding, staffing, coordination, facilities. The governor must use the full weight of the state government to meet this moment. And at the city level, we've proposed a number of solutions for the city to implement to bolster shelter capacity and transition new New Yorkers into permanent housing. But, you know, this is really a national problem and it requires Mm -hmm. a national solution. And so Washington should pass, must pass a robust and humane immigration reform. And the White House needs to provide the city the funding necessary to help our new neighbors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right about this being a national issue. And of course, we've all read about the tent cities that have risen in some jurisdictions that don't have a right to shelter mandate. So I think Certainly, we should be mindful of that. But I am curious, what is the status of the litigation over the mandate? Is there like briefing, argument, waiting for a ruling? What is sort of the status of that? The consent decree is actually in place now. So, you know, the Adams administration, unfortunately, is trying to lessen the impact or the effect of it. And so... We will watch how that plays out as well. You know, again, we have provided a number of solutions that we think from Legal Aid and the Coalition for the Homeless, who we work very closely with on this. And so hopefully the mayor will take us up on some of these suggestions. And instead of trying to run to court to undo the right to shelter and put thousands of long-term New Yorkers and our new neighbors, you know, at risk of injury or death during winter. So speaking of Mayor Adams and the administration, I believe that the city just released the new budget modification plan. Is that correct? Then how would you say the latest plan will affect the work of the Legal Aid Society? Were there some things that you're pleased with or things that weren't adequately supported? We luckily were not cut in this latest round. You know, obviously we're all concerned about the fiscal crisis that the city is facing. And we understand from the mayor who has asked all city departments to cut 15%, 5% each go around of the modification and has been clear recently that nonprofit organizations could feel the cuts in the next cycle, which we expect to be right after the first of the year. So, you know, we already, again, we're woefully, we are woefully underfunded and under-resourced as it is, even though we provide constitutionally and legally mandated work. So we certainly cannot afford to lose any funding as we are actually fighting for additional funding so that our folks can have livable wages, so that we can have the technology we need, the administrative support, et cetera, so that we can continue doing the work on behalf of our nearly 200,000 clients in New York City, the people that we serve. I'm curious. I think that a lot of people would love to be involved in the work of the Legal Aid Society. Do you hire straight out of law school or are you typically looking for attorneys who are more experienced? I'm sure there would be a lot of people who would love to be involved in in the work of the organization. The salary challenges aside, it's just really important and interesting work. So I guess, what are your hiring practices when it comes to attorneys? 
thank you for that question. We have openings on both sides. We definitely want to encourage folks to come to the Legal Aid Society if you're a brand new lawyer. And we also need, as you described, lateral hires, which are folks that have experience that could walk in. Obviously, we have different needs. So a brand new lawyer can't handle a felony case, for example. So then you would need lawyers that have more experience. And because we do have an unprecedented attrition rate right now due to the underfunding situation that we are facing and have faced for decades, uh, we do have lots of vacancies now. So we do hire and recruit interns, law grads, first-year law students straight from law school. And we always have a hiring cohort and, you know, have our new class that has started already as well. Wonderful, brilliant, getting the ground running. But again, they can't take felony cases or more serious cases. So we also have a great, great need to have more experienced lawyers, not just in our criminal practice, but we need help. Folks who are interested in helping in our civil practice, in our housing cases, immigration cases, public benefits, tax. Again, we have so many opportunities in our civil practice. If you go online to legalaid.org and you can see that legalaidnyc.org to be able to see what vacancies we have available. That would be great if we have folks that want to apply to us. Excellent. Excellent. So before we go to our speed round at the end of four questions I ask all my guests, I want to touch on one other issue in the news. So the Legal Aid Society is an organization, and you personally have been very involved in criminal justice reform over the years, for example, addressing the issue of cash bail. Lately, in some cities, there seems to be a kind of backlash against reform, with some arguing that maybe it's gone too far or that the criminal laws aren't being enforced strictly enough, and that often the communities that bear the brunt of under-enforcement of criminal law are some of the poorest and most marginalized ones. And there have been a couple of situations where so-called progressive prosecutors have been recalled or the subject of attempts to impeach them or things like that. So I guess it's a very broad question. You can answer however you like. But do you believe that criminal justice reform has gone too far? Not at all, actually. The backlash against, you know, to your point, bail reform, for example, really was fueled by the local tabloids, law enforcement, and, you know, certain politicians' claims that just were not rooted in the data and in the facts. So despite all of these reforms, I would say our criminal legal system is still significantly balanced favoring law enforcement over the people that we represent. And this imbalance, of course, harms public safety. It increases recidivism. It separates families and communities. So we need to build on the successes of last year and actually shift the focus away from the heavy hand of law enforcement to investing in people to improve our society at large. On the issue of discovery, for example, and discovery is the evidence that's used in a criminal matter, New York modernized its discovery statute in 2019. And prior to that, New York had one of the most restrictive discovery laws in the country. So conservative states like Texas and North Carolina had better open fund sharing practices than New York. So our state, yeah, our state discovery statute was so problematic, it was actually nicknamed the blindfold law since (laughs) the defense wouldn't receive the majority of evidence until the night before trial, if you can imagine that. So this was a massive imbalance that hindered due process, contributed to wrongful convictions, case delays, among other concerns and injustices. And I'm sure you've read that prosecutors have attempted to roll back portions of the reform, claiming, you know, that it's too onerous 
on burdensome, if you will, on law enforcement to collect, analyze, and share the discovery with the defense in a timely fashion. But in 2019, the reform didn't come with any funding to build infrastructure and hire staff to implement the reforms and the money that was allocated to prosecutors' offices throughout the state by Albany last year should help with that issue, but this is the fix. More funding is the answer, not rollbacks. And so even as we listen to the prosecutor concerns as well on it being too burdensome, too much time, you know, we know that if it was adequately funded the way it should be, then both sides should be able to manage and realize the full intent of the law. Imagine being accused of a crime and having law enforcement decide what they should be able to turn over, the prosecutor deciding what they should be able to turn over and win versus you and your attorney should get everything that's going to be against you or that could be used against you. Whether they decide to use it or not is irrelevant, but all evidence that's been generated and created against you in your case should be turned over to the defense in a timely fashion. That seems to make a lot of sense, even if you are pro-prosecution, in the sense that you often hear about convictions being overturned on appeal because the prosecutors either intentionally or accidentally fail to hand over exculpatory evidence, for example. So isn't a more liberal discovery regime better for both getting just outcomes, as in not convicting innocent people, but it probably also is, in some ways, it sounds even easier for the prosecution and more likely to lead to convictions being upheld. We would certainly agree with that. <laughs> okay, interesting. So partly it's a funding issue then, I think it's, it, is, it, it like. is in huge part a funding issue. We believe that until we have been able to realize what it looks like to effectuate discovery reform with adequate funding, we should not be talking about rollbacks. Mm. We know that until it's fully funded, it's hard to argue that there are other issues and concerns that need to be addressed if we're not fully funded. And that makes no sense that they passed it without thinking about the funding implications. But That makes okay. no sense. I agree. <laughs> you would be amazed at how many reforms are passed that are not fully funded. And again, taking it back to just our role as constitutionally and legally mandated uh, people who are charged with making the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution a real thing. And we are not adequately fully funded as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So turning to the final four questions, my little speed round here. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or it can be law as a more abstract system. I would say the law is a very useful tool and certainly one that has its limits. So again, either in the creation or the implementation of the law, it can land on indigent people, low-income people, communities of color differently than other groups. And so not always in its creation and usually in its application mm, that you okay. see the disparate treatment and the injustice. Sure. No, absolutely. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I'd probably want to be like a surgeon or something, something else that helps people in a, in a major way. Okay, good. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? I would say on average, usually seven hours of sleep. Lately, not so much. Okay. <laughs> seven is good. Seven, I think, is within the acceptable range. Yes. That's good. <laughs> and I guess my last question is, 
any final words of wisdom, either career advice or life advice for my listeners? I would say follow your heart. You can never go wrong when you do. And no matter what, always be courageous. Stand up for people who are disadvantaged and coming from marginalized and unrepresented communities. Well, that is a great note to end on. Thank you, Twyla, for following your heart and for all the courageous work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks so much to Twyla for joining me. And thanks to her and the Legal Aid Society for all that they do to advance equal justice in New York and beyond. Please consider donating or volunteering to support LAS's important work. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at davidlatt and on Instagram at davidbenjaminlatt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, November 29. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.